blew up what? I don't think anyone knows. I think a lot of people want to know. I have no idea who blew up what. My understanding of that is that the investigation is still going. Um, I know that Seymour Hearst said the U.S. did it, but my understanding is that it was kind of a maybe iffy source. Let's see. I remember reading something about that the other day. Yeah, the New York Times saying pro-Ukrainian group, but Swedish investigators here still don't know. They're saying it's pretty difficult to confirm. I think they know what kind of explosive was used to do it, and they said that ruled out some of the hottest theories. But they say it's most likely to be a state actor. I don't think they really know who's done it yet. So the jury's out on that one. Um, Now, as for Ukraine, I can kind of see both sides of the argument. You know, you hear a lot of people... And they're talking about how, you know, we should probably spend more money here before we got giving money to Ukraine. And I guess that, you know, kind of makes sense. But I feel like something that a lot of people don't consider when it comes to that. Well, I think they probably think it's it's either or. Yeah. Yeah. You don't really have to make that call. Yeah. I think they can look and see that there's several needs of the Americans right now, and they're questioning, are their needs being met? Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess we could ask the question, what do you think are the needs of Americans? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I'd like to go back to the Ukraine thing, though, because I like what you said about how it's not an either-or thing. I think a lot of people, it's presented as this false kind of black and white. You know, Well, if you're in favor of sending money to Ukraine, you're not in favor of fixing problems here at home. My big issue with that is that a lot of the people that are saying that oppose fixing most of the issues here at home. They talk about, well, why are we sending money to Ukraine's when we have veterans sleeping on the streets? But these are the same people that vote against providing health care to those veterans. Um, it was just a while back that I think some Republicans were voting against increased uh, – it was either insurance or health care for veterans that were exposed to toxic burn pits. And these are the same people that expect us to believe that they would rather that money be spent on veterans here in the U.S. as opposed to giving it to Ukraine. I don't really buy that. Um, I think the Ukraine issue has become so partisan in the U.S. And I, I don't think that's really an appropriate way to view foreign politics. Why do you think it's become so partisan? Um, well, definitely part of it. Um, <laughs> We're at a stage now in our domestic politics where pretty much anything that the right or left does is going to be contested by the other side, regardless of how much sense it might actually make or not. Um, You can find a few isolated examples where that isn't the case. But with the Ukraine thing, I never thought I'd see neocons and neoconservatives, the same group of people that pushed us into Iraq, um, sitting back and saying that Ukraine is a terrible idea. That's a really interesting turn of events in my opinion and why do you think that happened um like why i said shift I, I think the shift i'll have to think about that for a second i think a lot of it has to do with the rights shift and more of a populist direction really ever since trump um they've become much more isolationist um i feel like a lot of the neoconservatives have actually lost a lot of ground within the republican party um And, you know, that's the traditional establishment Republicans that Trump kind of ran against and was able to generate a lot of support against. Those are, you know, the rhinos, as he calls them. He has all all sorts of different names for them. Some people call them the swamp, et cetera. Uh, But, yeah, Trump really pushed the Republican Party in more of a populist direction. And because of that, there are a lot of people that are just much more reluctant for us to be involved um, with any country in any way outside of our borders, whether that's supplying aid or engaging in trade with them, et cetera, come a lot more isolationist. Um, I think some of that might be warranted. Um, you know, a lot of that is spawned from a lot of people's distrust of globalism. Um, people have various reasons for doing that. Some of them are warranted, some of them aren't. And we can get into that. Where do you think either party agrees right now on any subject? We can talk about rhetoric or we can talk about policy. 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 Okay, I'm trying to remember the last bipartisan. They did pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, narrowly. I'm trying to see. I think there was one more that's happened since then, but it is slipping my mind. Give me one second here. 
Seems the infrastructure one was really the last big one. Um, and obviously the two parties can always agree on increasing military funding. Even though you have small wings in both parties that might be opposed to it, probably more so on the Democratic side with you know the Democratic Socialists, uh, the Justice Democrats, that coalition. If we were going to break down America's biggest issues considered by either Republican or Democrat, let's make a list right now. What do you think the Democratic Party and their constituents believe the biggest issues are in America? Well, I think the party and the constituents are kind of two different things. Um, I think I might like to answer that question more just on the right, what do people think the biggest issues are? On the left, what do people think the biggest issues are? And then I'll kind of give what I think the biggest issues are. Um, So I know on the right... Um, specifically in the sort of MAGA Republican camp, there is a very growing consensus that our institutions have become corrupted by corporate interests and also state interests um, that have an agenda to push a sort of globalized socialist vision onto people. That's kind of the general idea that you get when you talk to people in that camp. Um, so they're going to be talking a lot about things like the World Economic Forum. They're going to be talking a lot about globalism, a lot about these big woke corporations and how they're pushing their agenda onto people. And I think there's this sense that they are attacking traditional American values, traditional Christian values, in an attempt to make people subservient to a quasi-one-world government organization. Um, there is a lot of conspiratorial thinking mixed in there and people vary on how much they actually believe that. Some people are much more moderate and they just think the government is taking away our freedoms. Then you have people on the other end who think that, you know, um, Hillary Clinton is a lizard person. So (laughs) we've got a, we've got a pretty big variety of beliefs there. How do you think that evolved into such a, hmm consensus that the government cannot be trusted and the government is corrupt? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, even for the conspiracy theories that I don't agree with, um, some of the best lies have a grain of truth in them, right? Um, I think it makes complete sense why a lot of people have begun to distrust some of our institutions. Um, I think that's because some of them have become more corrupt, But also, I think in the digital age, the shortfalls of those institutions and their failures have become more and more obvious to people in ways that they weren't before. Because before, if you didn't hear about it on the news, you probably weren't going to get it from anywhere. But now there is this constant discussion, this constant deep-seated criticism everywhere online of everything the government does. So every little misstep is identified, sometimes blown out of proportion. Um, I think the last several decades, specifically with the rise of neoliberalism in the 1970s and 80s, the rise of globalism, that really did have an impact on working class Americans. Um, They felt that. And I think for a long time they were looking for somewhere to point their fingers. Um, And I think that this new right-wing populism that Trump really kind of spearheaded, I think it gave them somewhere to point their fingers. And it was at the swamp. It was at the globalists, at the World Economic Forum. It was at the deep state. Um, And I I think a lot of their anger is warranted. I think it might be slightly misdirected. Um, And I think there may be some misconceptions there about what's actually caused a lot of the pain and hardship these people are feeling. But I think a lot of their anger is probably justified in some of those areas, for sure. What do you think has caused the pain and hardship that people are feeling? Um, Part of it is globalism. I hate to use the term globalism because it's it's more than that. It's the economic ideology of neoliberalism, um, which is fundamentally founded on three pillars. That's deregulation, tax cuts, and privatization. Tax cuts for who? Mainly the wealthy. Generali- uh, they'll generally drop taxes for everyone, but if you actually look at the bills, 
Usually the tax cuts for the wealthy are larger, more impactful, and they last longer in the legislation. Um, and there is, this isn't like some nefarious scheme, although there is some of that going on. There is a genuine group of economists, especially coming through the 70s and 80s, that believed this would work. Um, they were these radical free market ideologues, and they thought that if government would simply get out of economic affairs to the highest degree possible, the natural mechanisms of the free market would be unleashed to promote prosperity and equality for all. That didn't happen. And that didn't happen because there were some fundamental assumptions they were working with that over time we've empirically seen to be untrue. And what neoliberalism actually resulted in was a society where wealth inequality has spiraled out of control, um, a society where a lot of our industrial base has been moved overseas because there's a profit incentive to do production in places where costs are cheaper. So that's cheaper labor costs, lower regulations. They can dump as many pollutants and toxins into the atmosphere and the water and the ground as they want um, whenever they're working in a place like southeastern Asia as opposed to, you know, Detroit, Michigan. So we're starting to see a lot of the consequences of that. And that's why Trump did so well in the Rust Belt. You know, he campaigned, at least in 2016, on bringing the jobs back. You know, he talked a lot about how globalism had destroyed a lot of the American industrial base. And that's partly true. Um, but he failed to deliver on that promise. He failed to even accurately identify how to solve that issue. So, yeah. Okay, so now do the flip side of that. The flip side of what? That's the Republican side. What about the Democratic side? The Democratic side. Okay. Um, There are different factions within the Democratic Party, just like there are in the Republican Party. So you kind of have your standard... I'd say there are really three main factions. You have your centrist, like very, very moderate Democrats. So that's people like Joe Manchin. It's people like Kristen Sinema. Um, These people are mildly socially liberal in terms of their economic point of views. They are very, very status quo, very pro-neoliberalism. So you're rarely going to see them engage too much in any big levels of government action when it comes to regulating or investing into the economy. Um, So that's kind of your more moderate centrist Democrats. And then I think you have your kind of standard liberals. These are people that you're going to hear them talk a lot about racial justice, social justice, They might have some planks, some economic issues that they're concerned about. Um, But broadly speaking, those people seem to be more focused on the social issues. And then you have your progressives who are all in on the social issues and they're all in on the economic issues. But that's a relatively small wing of the Democratic Party. Um, Let me see how many people the Justice Dems have because I think that's the largest coalition in Congress. Justice Dems number so there are there are 11 justice democrats in the house so that uh that shows you how much power progressives have in the democratic party and that's actually something that i might want to talk about briefly is the fact that you often hear a lot of people in media a lot of people that are kind of mildly into politics talk about how far left the democratic party has gone and they, they frame it as if the, the Democratic Party is being controlled by you know radical left progressives who want to move the country slowly into a Stalinist hellscape. The issue with that is that the progressives really don't have that much power in the Democratic Party. They're a very small minority in terms of the elected officials that actually sit in Congress. What you actually see, at least in terms of the current power structure in the Democratic Party, is that it is primarily standard liberals and moderate Democrats who pick up on some of the social issues that progressives champion in order to win those votes. But there are a lot of progressives that are deeply disappointed in the way that the Democratic Party traditionally and over the last few years has been handling policy in terms of what they're pushing for, in terms of what they're opposing. Um, So this idea that Democratic Party is controlled by progressives in some really strong sense is just, it's not true. It's not factual. Okay, so let's. I really wanted to review the differences 
the true differences, but also the perceived differences. Mm. But then also, where is there any ground where we can unite Mm. in what is best for the American people? Because here's, excuse me, here's my concern. It just seems like, depending on whichever president we get in, whichever party they belong to, Mm -hmm. whoever their constituents are, they're leading the entire country. Yeah. They're leading everyone. Maybe their constituents are, they voted for them and put them in there. But as long as everything is like explicitly catered to one facet, one group of the entire American population, we're just becoming further and further and further divided. Mm-hmm. And so the the chase to the White House, I mean, it's always been, you know, there's always been political gain. There's always been competition. It used to be very much an honor, I believe, to be the president of the United States. Yeah, um, it used to be. But now it seems to be so much about power and power over your opposing party instead of unifying and doing what is best for the American society as a whole. Yeah. No, I I think I hear what you're saying. Um, I guess one thing I'd say is it's probably always been about power. I think we're kind of kidding ourselves if we think that hasn't played a role in it until recently it's probably wishful thinking i think it was better concealed before people had a bit more tact about how they were willing to go about it um trump kind of threw a wrench in all that but now okay so my point was that the goal seems to be not power as president but if you achieve that goal you have the power over your opposing party to make them cringe at what you are able to do and executive orders and yeah. just your, your influence. Yeah, so it seems, uh, I, I understand what you're saying now. And this is something that I've been talking with some of my friends about recently, and it seems like more and more, I don't think both sides do this to the same degree. And we can get into that, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong or not, and we can have a discussion about that. But it seems like more and more lately we're getting into the politics of vengeance as opposed yes. to politicians being interested in actually governing for the broader interests of Americans. Um, a perfect example of this, and I swear I'm not trying to just pick on the right, but a perfect example of this, at least recently in my opinion, um, has been a lot of what Donald Trump is talking about. If you've looked at any of his recent speeches, some of his campaign trails, what he spends time talking about, it's almost all personal grievance. It's his personal issues, the people he dislikes, the people that he has grudges against, the people that have treated him unfairly. And it seems like he's much more interested in getting vengeance on his enemies than he is in painting a vision for the future of this country. Yes, but I could have said the same thing about Pelosi. About Pelosi? Well, I mean, please give me examples. And also, I mean... I'm going to be honest. I don't like Pelosi that much either. Okay, <laughs> so if we're being fair here, no, I think I'm everything, perfectly willing. I think everything became about vengeance. I think a lot of it did. I will say one thing about Biden that I kind of like. He does it a bit, and a bit is too much. But he does seem, at least in his rhetoric, now an argument could be made that maybe in his policy that's a different thing. But at least in some of his rhetoric, he has talked about trying to bring people together. But then on that same note, he's also talked about how MAGA Republicans are a threat to this country and stuff. So probably draw there on Biden. Um, I would like to see politicians come in and unite the country. But the thing is, it's not just rhetoric that we're divided on. I think Americans genuinely have valid political differences at this point in time. And I think you know, it'd be nice if we could come together, but we would need something to come together around. And right now we just cannot agree on anything genuinely. There's very little that I think we can agree on. Um, I think we're all feeling some of the similar pains and pressures. And I can talk about that a little bit. Um, well, I, ec- 
economically. Yeah. <laughs> um, inflation is um, what we're we listening to earlier about how boomers can afford to buy houses right now, but yeah. millennials, I mean, just millennials have been left left out to dry, mm-hmm. and Gen Z is probably going to be even worse. I mean, we we are the generations that are coming of age in the post Great Recession era. Um, wealth inequality in the United States is at an all time high. It's very problematic for us. Now we're dealing with inflation. We've got a cost of living crisis. Wages have stagnated since the seventies. The unions are gone. The job market is actually doing okay, but inflation is eating away at any wage gains that have been made. Um, it's a big problem, and a lot of people can't even afford to take advantage of the basic opportunities that previous generations had, like college, um, so like being able to start? move out as a young adult. Where do we start? Um, well, my personal opinion is that the biggest issue in the United States right now is wealth inequality. I think if we could solve that, we would solve a lot of these issues that are actually downstream of that initial problem. The problem with wealth inequality, it's a tricky problem to solve. You know, there's no one policy that's going to do away with wealth inequality. There's more likely to be a package of policies that we can use to address it. So the first thing would be a more progressive tax system. And we would do this to ensure that financial resources keep circulating throughout the economy instead of all pooling up at the top, causing the whole thing to skew off balance. Um, So we could look at some of the European countries, for instance, some of the Nordic countries that have a far more progressive tax system. Now, we don't have to go that extreme because there are a lot of people that say, well, I don't want to be paying 70%, 80% taxes. I hear you. I don't want to pay those tax rates either. So we can do that, but a more Americanized version to address this extreme inequality that I think most sensible people can recognize is not fair and it's also probably not healthy for the economy either. What did we do under the Depression? What was we raised taxes? What you, how, how did we get everyone on board? Because I, I tell you, you no one about, no one wants their taxes raised. What we did in the Great Depression. Um, are you talking about the New Deal yes. that got us out of that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we did not. My understanding is we did not raise taxes in the New Deal. The government spent a massive amount of money into the economy. Um, And it wasn't just the New Deal that got us out of the Great Depression. Overall, the thing that got us out of the Great Depression was spending, both from New Deal programs but also from World War II efforts. And that massive amount of spending stimulated the economy enough to get us out of that depression. The thing is, we're not in that situation right now. No, we're not. But that was a time where Americans were Where we all kind of came together. Yeah, we were Um, unified. Yeah, no, and I think the reason that was able to happen, for one, FDR, just brilliant leader. Yes. Brilliant leader. There's not much else you can say about it. But on top of that, there was so much shared agony at that point. And I'm not to say people aren't in agony right now, but it is not like it was in the Great Depression. And hopefully we don't have to get to that point before we can all come to our senses and agree on something to actually move this country forward. I hope it doesn't come to that point. We are on that trajectory right now. The more we're deregulating our financial system, wealth inequality is spiraling out of control. We're seeing, you know, different cases coming before Supreme Courts about like whether or not certain regulatory agencies should even be allowed to do their job, how they should be funded. Um, what was it? Oh, I saw something recently that was awful. Was it the? Uh, let me look this up. Yeah. So for one. Um, the Supreme Court is taking up a case that could threaten the existence of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So if that doesn't tell you where we're at in terms of our risk for experiencing a massive financial crisis, I don't know what will. We are playing with fire here, and hopefully it's not too late. What do you think are some of the frivolous waste-of-time efforts in Congress right now? Just pick the top three. The top three in Congress right now. Well, you know, it's <laughs> Congress is always doing a lot of things. I. Mm. Okay. Well, what about the TikTok ban? The TikTok ban. 
I'm in the middle on that one. I really don't know. Um, from my understanding, there's a lot in that bill that has nothing to do with protecting American private information. There's a lot in that bill that instead has to do with protecting the financial interests of American tech companies um, at the expense of American freedoms and also increased monitoring by the state of your information, which apparently we're trying to protect Americans from on behalf of China by saying, we're going to do it instead. And I don't think that's valid. I think it's a Trojan horse bill. I really do. Um, I also think that it's being spearheaded by some, it's being spearheaded by some Republicans because the primary demographic on that app are very young people and it has mobilized a lot of politically interested um, young kids between the age of 18 to 25. And it was this voting demographic that in the recent um, midterm elections delivered a lot of Democratic victories that were not expected. And I think Republicans know that. And I think they're trying to find a way uh, to lessen the ability of that age group to organize and unify. And I think that TikTok is right now one of the primary ways they're doing that because it is, in a way, a real-time news source that everyone has access to all throughout the U.S. and in some places all throughout the world, aside from mainland China, who doesn't allow TikTok because it's too addictive. Okay, let's go back to the top three um, blowing smoke, wasting time. There's always a lot of time wasting in Congress. I think we could talk about what I think the individual parties are wasting time on, if that would be okay Okay. with you. Um, The GOP, I think, is wasting a tremendous amount of time attacking trans people. Um, And I understand that there are some people on the right who have concerns that, you know, they're trying to convince your kids that gender isn't real. They're trying to get your kids to believe all sorts of weird, you know, quote-unquote degenerate ideologies. But the truth is the trans population makes up less than half of a percent of the United States population. And the Republicans currently in a lot of state legislatures and in Congress are wasting a ridiculous amount of time and energy and political capital on this issue that really does not pose a threat to this country Do you think it is a political issue? I think it's a private issue. I personally don't think that the government should really have any business in it, except when maybe it comes to minors. I think we should have, obviously, some sensible regulations and rules around that because you have rules for allowing minors to do anything. How did it become a political issue and not a private issue? <clears throat> and, and not to call them a minority, but when the minority voice... No, I mean, they are a minority. Mm-hmm. They're one of the smallest minorities in America. Um, they're also one of the most vulnerable minorities in America. Yes. They experience rates of suicide and murder at significantly yes. disproportionate and, and hate rates. Crimes. And hate crimes. at significantly disproportionate rates in the rest of the population. Um, right now, they're simply fighting for a right to exist and be legally recognized by the state. And that is seen somehow as an existential threat to our society. I think that is a load of rubbish. I don't think it makes any sense. Now, if you can tell me, if you can make a case, I'd love to hear it, but I just don't see how that is a pressing... I think... I don't see how that's a pressing political issue in our country. Well, and that's that's probably those on the right do not feel like it's a pressing issue either. And they perhaps, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but parents want the right to be able to parent their children yeah. the way that they want mm-hmm. to. They want the right to educate their children the way that they want to. And so when you have <clears throat> a minority rocking the boat and demanding that your children either be exposed to something that you feel they should not be or introduced to even the concept of it, it's... ruffling quite a few feathers. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if if we talk of trying to be fair to everyone, do we keep it a private issue or do we... I mean, I don't know what kind of laws you would make... I think... To protect both sides. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. 
I think generally speaking in America, our tradition has been if we're going to make an error, we are going to err on the side of freedom. We're going to err on the side of liberty. I think that certainly applies to the trans issue. There are some aspects of trans issues that I don't think a lot of people have great answers to. Some of them are really small things like should trans people be allowed to compete in the sport of the gender they identify with. That's an issue I haven't heard really great cases on either side for. And I think in issues like that, yeah, there's a big possibility of making the wrong decision. Err on the side of freedom. And if it ends up being too big of an issue, we can fix it later on. But that has generally been the American answer I to these issues. I don't think anyone thinks that you can fix something after the fact. I think that's why we have such... You can definitely pass heads. legislation later on. I'm not saying that you can't. I'm saying that, okay, you take um, another right issue, prayer in schools. Mm. They still talk about that. Like yeah. if that had not happened, like that was the, um, you know, the start of the end of the demise. And so, yes, I think either party recognizes that once something is allowed or not allowed, it's hard to get that reversed. I guess it depends. I mean, I, I think I see your point there. Kind of like once the cat's out of the bag, it's hard to put it back in. I get that. I still think that my point about erring on the side of freedom applies here in regards to the trans issue. That's subjective. Whose freedom? Whose freedom? A person's freedom to identify as they wish if they're an adult. If they're a child, I think it's much more complicated. I am not a psychologist, but obviously I think psychologists need to be involved in this process for minors, and that's something that should be decided between the child, their parents, and a licensed psychologist. I don't really think the state has much business there besides ensuring that all of those parties are involved. Freedom... You also have the opposite side thinking their freedom is in, infringed upon by another's decision that contradicts their opinion. How is, that, how is that an issue of freedom? They're basically saying, well, I have the freedom not to be offended, and it seems that that's an argument that they have hated on you know, some liberals for in the past. I don't see how it's an issue of freedom for people on the right, except for maybe in regards to the education of their children. Exactly. I get that point. I get that point. And I guess my case for that would be, unless you think that you can genuinely set up a society in which trans people do not exist, trying to shelter your children from that from their entire childhood is probably a fruitless effort, especially in the age of the internet. Do I think that kids in kindergarten and grade school should be getting comprehensive lessons on gender identity? Probably not, but I also don't think that you should ban the discussion. I think that there's definitely a sensible path through here, through this you know, minefield um, in these present days, and I don't feel like a lot of people are viewing it that way. They're taking these very rigid, very ideological approaches to this, and they're not listening to, the, they're not genuinely listening to the concerns of the other side. And I'm probably guilty of that too myself, to a degree. I mean, we all have our biases. Um, I try and identify mine where they come up, but I'm not perfect. That's why I have people like you to call me out on them when they occur. Well, I, you know, I'm trying to see both sides of that. And hopefully this podcast, Critical Thinking, we're going to look at all sides of it. But I think the issue is when it comes to public school and government control over what is and is not taught to your children. I cannot see that this issue is going to die down. It might not die down. I'll give you my take on it. You can tell me whether you agree, disagree, or what you might add to it. I think in public school... you're going to have some degree of the government deciding what's taught... That's the point. 
If not, you can homeschool or you can send your kids to private school. I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea. Parents should have a say in their kids' education. Absolutely. But should they single-handedly decide what their kids are being taught? I don't know. Because there may be important topics, important discussions that parents find not valuable that are very important for the well-being of that child, and it may be the government's job to ensure that 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 child gets that education. Because I know the people that went to private schools, and there were important things that they didn't learn in some private Christian academies and some various private schools that actually kind of set them back in terms of like their social interactions with other people and their understanding of the world. I know people that were taught that STDs could be created out of thin air. I know people that were t- they weren't even taught you know what condoms were and stuff like that. And I think those are important things that people need to know in order to enter the adult world. And I think it's the government's job to ensure that kids are prepared for the future. It's also a parent's job. But the issue is who in government is making that decision? Well, the great thing about a government, um, at least here in America, which I really hope we're going to be able to hold on to, is that we're a representative democracy. So you can vote for the people you want to represent your community, both at the local, state, and national level. And if you vote intelligently, Intelligently, they will represent your interests in those respective halls of power. So, you know, there's always this skepticism, and I understand the skepticism. It's in some ways baked into the American fabric, the skepticism of big government, and that's good. We should have a skepticism of big government. We should have a skepticism of big organizations of anything, but that skepticism has to be rooted in reality, and there's this skepticism in America that the government just kind of wants to control you et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is we elect the government here. We elect most of the most powerful officials in this country. So if you're skeptical of the people that you're electing, Let, maybe you need to make better voting decisions. I'm going to interrupt you for a minute, politely. Okay, go ahead. Politely go ahead. interrupt you. <clears throat> we keep bringing up the phrase, Don't, do not want the government to control you. What I see is you have one side who absolutely does not want the government to have any say over their finances, over their private family life, etc. Then you have the other side who wants government intervention in all areas because they are seeking something that they equate as being more fair to everyone. Can I push back on that? Yes. I think both sides want government interference. And I think different people on both sides convince themselves that they don't, but they totally do. They just want government to do different things. Explain. Okay. So on the more conservative side, they say they don't want government involved in the economy. That's not true. You can't have the government separated from the economy. The state is the foundation of all economic activity. Um, The legal system serves as the foundation for capitalism. It regulates, you know, what is a contract, what is a business, what is private property. They want the government involved in that. They want the government involved in enforcing bankruptcy law. They want the government involved in ensuring that employers have rights to fire uh, employees that want to unionize. They want the government involved in all that stuff. They don't want the government involved in ensuring that laborers have the right to join a union. They don't want the government involved in ensuring that the financial system is properly regulated so it doesn't blow up the economy every five or six years. So they want the government involved. They just don't want it doing certain things. And on the social side, they definitely want the government involved. Now, this depends on who we're talking about on the right. And I'll talk about the left, too, in a second. But certain factions on the right definitely want the government involved um, in deciding who you're allowed to marry um, and deciding things like how you're allowed to identify Things like that. They want the government involved in all those things. They want the government involved in the schools to ensure that kids are praying. They want the government involved in the schools to ensure that kids are being taught the word of God. Some people, not all conservatives are that far out there, but there are some people like that. So they definitely want government involvement. They just consider any form of government involvement that isn't the kind they want to be oppressive. And now we can shift to the left. Obviously, this is not indicative of the entire left. These are The left and the right are not a monolith. They are a broad coalition of people that share some common interests, but there's a lot of diversity within the different sides of the political spectrum as well. 
On the left, generally speaking, you have people that, yeah, they want government involvement in the economy to regulate big business, to ensure that they're acting in ways that are ethical and fair and not, don't pose a danger to the economy. Um, they want the government to you know, provide labor protections to ensure that people are allowed to unionize, etc. They want the government maybe more involved in the tax system because they think it's important that in order to keep the economy functioning well, we want money to keep circulating through the system. We want redistributive policies to combat you know, runaway wealth inequality uh, to keep our economy more stable. Um, and in the social arena, they may want government to uh, enforce... Um, certain forms of equality. You know, they may want the government to ensure that uh, a great example, I know this happened several years ago, but I think there was a bakery owner um, that wanted to prevent baking a cake for a gay couple. Um, They definitely want the government involved in that because they want to ensure that civil rights laws are upheld, et cetera, and that people can't discriminate. So both sides want government involvement. It's just in different things. And I think we need to be honest about that conversation. And that's one of the things that really bothers me is when you have you have people that claim to be small government conservatives arguing for banning gay marriage, and then you have people that claim to be left-wing libertarians um, arguing for all sorts of very invasive, um, sometimes too invasive, like economic uh, – economic policies or social policies. So I think it just depends, you know. So how many of those issues have we covered? One. How many of what issues? <laughs> what? Issues that are wasting time. Congress. <laughs> yeah, we kind of went on a tangent there, didn't we? Um, the trans thing is one. Not because it's not important. We, um, when we discussed TikTok. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about the trans thing just for a second more because there's one thing I wanted to say that I didn't quite get to earlier. Me saying that I don't think it warrants as much discussion in government does not mean I don't think it's important. It's definitely important, especially for those people that fall into that community. It's just there are other issues that are affecting more people in a more significant and impactful way that are being ignored because we are spending so much time and energy and legislative um we're just writing so much legislation about this and it doesn't make sense to me. It's less than a half percent of the population. They're not hurting anyone. You know, there aren't police coming to your door trying to inject your kids with hormone blockers. I don't, I don't understand why we're spending so much time talking about this. And it actually seems to be part of a longstanding strategy for some factions on the right. If you go back to the 60s, They were doing it to black people. If you go back to the late 90s and the early 2000s, they did it to gay people. Now it's trans people. They find the most vulnerable minority community they can, and they spend their time deliberately targeting and harassing them with the explicit intention of distracting from the real pressing issues that they don't want to address because they know that they can't win on some of their economic platforms because they're the same vague old, well, tax cuts, maybe we'll deregulate, et cetera, et cetera. So they have to find something to generate a base of support. They have to find some group that people can point their fingers at and blame. And right now it's trans people. So critically thinking. Now, I don't want to make them out to be the villains, okay? I'm no, not saying... No, I'm not saying that you are. I'm not saying that the Republicans today are the same thing as the people... Uh, that were opposing, you know, the civil rights movement in the 60s, because I don't think that. Obviously, we're talking about different groups of people here, but it's the same pattern of behavior. It's the same find a minority group that's vulnerable, that can't really fight back, and make them the scapegoat, and use that to generate a broad base of support in a coalition. Use that for people to direct their anger towards, instead of directing it in the appropriate direction, which is actually at the very people that you represent and take donations and campaign contributions from. That's what's going on. Do you think it's more important to pay attention what either party is not doing? Pay more attention to what they're not doing instead of what they are doing? You definitely got to look at both. I think you kind of have to take into account everything they're doing and everything they're not doing, what they're saying they want to do and what they actually do, because that's a big thing. Um, 
there's a lot of that on both sides of the political aisle. There are these politicians that get up there, they say really nice words, and obviously this is why so many people hate politicians. Because they'll get up there, they say all the right things, and they'll get people clapping, and then once you elect them, it's like they turn to a completely different person. And they're passing all these laws, and you're like, well, that's not what I wanted, and that's why you know, Congress, I think, is at a 14% approval rating. Um, the last two presidents... I don't know where Biden's at. He might be mid-40s maybe, and that's about where Trump was most of his presidency. People just don't have a lot of trust in our political system right now, um, and there are some very good reasons for that. Um, but it's concerning because our political system has a lot of potential. It's just become corrupted in some ways. It's become in desperate need of reform in others. It's starting to show its age. We need to update it. Um, but we're so busy, you know, distracted about, you know, culture war fights, et cetera, that we can't have the real discussions about institutional reform that we need in this country because we're too busy fighting issues that are caused by that underlying issue. So we're fighting, you know, with symptoms instead of addressing the disease is basically, I guess, my overarching point. So what should we do moving forward as a country, as a whole? Do we continue to be so divided? Do we try to unite? Do we try to find some common ground? How do we bring back honor? How do we bring back respect? How do we bring back love our fellow American? And maybe bring back is not the right word. Is the America that so many believe they remember and recall with such fondness was it ever truly so wonderful? Okay. So I'll start by saying this. I think the principles and ideas outlined in the Constitution and some of the following amendments to the Constitution are genius. Some of the best ideas that have ever been had and implemented about the way a government should be structured. That's not to say they're perfect, but no system is perfect, at least none, none that I've ever heard of or that I've ever seen. The thing with America that I think is so interesting and also extremely tragic, but also hopeful, is that we have these amazing principles. And throughout history, we have time and time again failed to live up to them. But throughout history, we've also come closer and closer and closer to recognizing that vision. So, you know, we talked about how all men are created equal at a time when a significant portion of this country literally existed in bondage. But eventually, those principles won out. And they didn't just win out on their own. There was a very concerted effort by, you know, both people of color in this country, abolitionists, to fight back on behalf of those principles and say, it says here in this document that all men are created equal. How can you justify this? And eventually, that argument won out. And we did away with slavery. It took us longer to do away with racism, which we still haven't done away with, but at least the extremely explicit, formal, institutionalized racism, which now is much more implicit in our systems. Um, but I feel like we've gradually moved closer and closer to those ideals, and I think that is the America that people remember and identify with. Not necessarily America at any specific point in time, but this idea that America was constantly progressing, constantly moving forward, um, closer and closer to the ideals that we all hold so dear. I think there's a growing sense these days that we've kind of lost our way on that path and that in a way we're kind of lost in the desert at the moment in search of the promised land. And how do we get there? That's a great question. There are a lot of things that we could do. Obviously, I have ideas about policies I'd like to see implemented, but until we can get to a point to where we can agree on those policies, they're not going to do us much good because they're going to have no chance of being implemented or passed. So I think the first thing we have to start with, there's got to be a lot of activism, a lot of organization, a lot of talking to people you disagree with and having meaningful conversations with them. Um, we're not doing a lot of that these days. There is some in isolated sections, but there's also a lot of vitriol, a lot of attacking. And here's the thing. I love to attack people on the other side of the political aisle for me. People on the other side love to do it to me. It's fun. We like it. It's, it's great. There's nothing wrong with that. There's always going to be some of that. But you also have to, at the end of the day, be able to sit down with those people and work out what might be a common approach to some problems. Because the fact is you can't run a country with just half 
of your population support. You have to be able to bring people under a broader tent. Um, I do think there are some issues that could do that for Americans if we communicate about them the right way. Because at the end of the day, a conservative Republican in uh, you know Kansas somewhere is going to have different interests than a English major living in L.A. They're going to have different interests. They're going to have different things they're concerned about. And we have to be able to sell a common message to these people in a way that is communicated to where they are at. And I think that's something that we're failing to do right now, especially on the left. Um, I think we need to do a much better job of that. I'm trying to work on that. I have a tendency to be a bit combative sometimes, but I'm trying to work on it. So hopefully this podcast will help with that. Well, I don't know how many times you have deleted Twitter and then reinstalled it. I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. I'm actually probably better on Twitter than I am in real life in terms of uh, my combativeness because I have more time to think things out. I think everyone needs more time to think things out before they respond. Yeah. So let's close out with one positive thing right now. About what? About our country. What is one positive thing that everyone could rally behind? We survived the pandemic, kind of. There were a lot of us that didn't. But there was a lot of panic that it was going to be the downfall of the U.S., either because we were all going to die or we were going to collapse into a communist hellscape. We seem to avoid both of those scenarios. So it is a Pyrrhic victory. Um, We won, but at what cost sort of ordeal. Um, We're still a global superpower. We still have most of our freedoms. There are a lot of people that would argue that that's going away. I'd ask them to show me where and how. Um... But I also feel like we're at a turning point here. We really are. Um, And we could either make this country greater than it's ever been, or we could descend into some really dark times. And I think all of us have an individual responsibility to do what we can to steer our nation on a better path. And we're going to be imperfect. You know, there are going to be things that you think are good ideas that are terrible ideas. I'm sure there are many ideas I have currently that I will not hold several years from now. Um, But the best you can do is push for good as you see it. Um, Try to be skeptical not only of what other people tell you, but also of what you tell yourself. And hopefully you as an individual and us as a nation will come out better for it. That's all we can hope for. We just have to keep pushing forward. That's what America's always done. It's what we'll continue to do, and hopefully it'll continue to work out for us. So we'll see. Hey, today's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And until next time, there'll be something new to talk about. I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there will be. I had fun. <laughs>